When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello folks, Dominic here. Once again, I am asking for your support. At the end of the episode, I have a link to a listener survey. It's completely anonymous, but if you could take a moment to listen and complete the survey, I would be most grateful. There are rewards on offer if we get enough responses. Anyway, on with the show. Salam alaikum, and welcome back to the History of Egypt podcast, episode 177, Sun Born. Today, we begin the reign of King Ramesses I, a new ruler, a new dynasty, a new chapter in political history. The new pharaoh is an interesting figure. He comes from relatively humble origins but he would establish one of the most famous lineages in Egyptian history. I'm going to do something slightly different today. The first half of this episode is recycled from episode 170. Back then, we introduced Ramesses, or Paramesu, as a government official, a colleague and servant of King Horemheb. But this is an unusual moment and I realise there may be many listeners who decide to start their narrative journey here. For those just joining the show, the first half of this episode will introduce the essentials of Ramesses before he gained the throne. Then, in chapter 2, we will embark on the story of his reign. If you are a long-time listener, or you don't need the refresher, you can skip ahead to chapter 2. There is a timecode in the episode's description, marking the point where the next chapter begins. It might be slightly earlier or later, depending on whether advertising appears on this episode. The point is, feel free to jump ahead if you need to. This episode is brought to you by Liz Graydon, Eric Anderson, and Yorain Theodos, who kindly made donations to the podcast. Folks, thank you so much for your generosity. With your support, we can celebrate a magnificent coronation for a new king of Egypt. To everyone listening, thank you for joining me. Come, let's revise what we know of Paramesu, and then begin the reign of Ramesses. The year was approximately 1319 BCE. It was regnal year 13 under the majesty of Josa Keperu Ra Hor M. Heb. Hor M. Heb still had not produced an heir. To the best of our knowledge, there were no children for this king, at least no acknowledged children. If Hor M. Heb had other wives or sexual partners, we do not know about them. There is one woman, named Amenia, 
who might be an early wife of Hormheb, or at least a member of his family. Unfortunately, that relationship is quite uncertain. There is debate among academics. Regardless, the situation seems relatively clear. However you look at it, King Hormheb had failed in his most important duty. He did not produce a viable heir. There would be no Horus issuing from his loins, and as a result, the future might belong to instability and chaos. So, what to do? In the end, Horemheb turned to a servant. He appointed one of his officials, a high-ranking member of the government, to be his successor. This man was named Pa-Ra-Mesu. Pa-Ra-Mesu means born of the sun. Not born of Ra, at least not yet. As a non-royal person, Pa-Ra-Mesu spelled his name phonetically. He did not use the term Ra in its divine sense, like the god, but rather its literal one, just meaning the sun. Later, when he became the king, Paramesu did change the spelling of his name to include divine symbols, but in his early life and career, Paramesu was born of the sun, not born of Ra. Stop me if you've heard this before, but Paramesu's origins are murky. We can piece together his early career, thanks to a couple of artefacts and records. But unlike Hormheb, who built a magnificent tomb at Saqqara, Paramesu did not leave a lavish, elaborate record of his work in the government. Presumably, Paramesu commissioned a tomb somewhere, and that might have been similar to Hormheb's. But to date, that tomb is unidentified. So we don't have the same kind of records as we did for Hormheb. Paramesu's family is a bit more visible. They seem to come from the north, the eastern delta region. That is an educated guess, based on the names of these people, and where their records show up. We'll start with the names. Paramesu's father was named Suti, or Seti. This name comes from the god Sutek, better known as Seth. Now obviously Seth is quite famous but worship of Seth is relatively rare. The god does not show up in his own shrines or temples, at least not in the south. In the north, Seth is a bit more visible. He had temples in the eastern delta region. Since Paramesu's father is called Suti, or Seti, after the god, it's a reasonable bet that the family comes from this region. Again, this is an educated guess, but it's a decent foundation. So the family might come from the north. What was their family business? Well, Suti, Seti, was a military man. He had the title of troop commander, Heri Pejet. He might have been a diplomat who visited the northern lands, but that point is uncertain. Unfortunately, the only thing we know about Suti for sure is that he was a troop commander, a military man. That is something, and it gives us a little bit of information. At the very least, we can say that Paramesu, Suti's son, had a vaguely military background in his family. It's not a lot to go on, but it's a start. Suti, or Seti, had been a troop commander. Paramesu followed in these footsteps. Early in his career, Paramesu became a soldier, specifically a troop commander. 
He was also an overseer of horses, an extremely valuable resource for the army, and he was, maybe, an overseer of stables as well. That last title is debated, but it would fit. If you're in charge of horses, it makes sense to be in charge of their housing and support facilities as well. Alas, the debate goes on, and we can't be sure. The point is, Paramesu was a troop commander, and he was an overseer of horses. So, like his father, he was a military man, first and foremost. It seems that Paramesu slowly climbed the ladder of the military administration. Along the way, he must have come to the attention of Horemheb. Perhaps the two knew one another, back when Horemheb had been an official, before he became king. We can only speculate on their relationship, but it seems that Horemheb started to favour Paramesu as a privileged official. Sometime in the later half of his reign, Horemheb gave Paramesu a serious promotion. He named this man as Chatti. The Chatti are Egypt's highest-ranking officials. The most common translation is vizier, an old Arabic word. You could also call the Chatti the prime ministers, or premier officials of the government. In the 18th dynasty, there were two Chatti, no more, no less. A Chatti of the north, and a Chatti of the south. These men led the administration, the bureaucracy, for each half of the country. As you can imagine, they were incredibly prominent. Horamheb named Paramesu the Chatti of the North. With this promotion, Paramesu would become the leader of a vast government system. He would have scribes and overseers following his commands. He would have access and influence with local families or community leaders. And he would have control of resources belonging to the crown. Paramesu, as Chatti, would have power over justice and legal questions. And of course, he would enjoy social power, prestige, and status. This was a massive step up the ladder. As Chatti, Paramesu could access certain resources. Most importantly, he could access stone. The great stone quarries of south and north would provide materials for building projects and art. And Paramesu now had access to that. Here, we get a nice little trace of Paramesu's early life. You see, we actually have his sarcophagus. After he became the Chatti, Paramesu commissioned a casket. Two of them, in fact. Separate excavations, many years apart, uncovered two sarcophagi belonging to Paramesu. These are a pair, and they bear the same titles and names of their owner. That owner is Paramesu, and they seem to be the sarcophagi he commissioned in his pre-royal life. The caskets are human-shaped, or anthropoid. They present the owner lying on his back, with arms resting at his sides. Paramesu is shown wearing a robe, a long garment that reaches almost to his ankles. This robe is quite distinctive. It is the robe of the chati, or the viziers. The man, the sarcophagus, wears a heavy wig or headdress. Thick strands, like braided hair, fall down over his shoulders. On his chin, he wears a short beard. His face is calm, passive. 
the eyes and lips have an almond shape, quite common in the late 18th dynasty. All up, Paramesu's sarcophagus is the classic image of a royal official. Beyond the art, which is pretty, these caskets tell us something important. It seems that when Paramesu became the chati, or vizier, he did not necessarily expect to become the next king. The carvings on his sarcophagus are the sort you would find for any non-royal official. Like most of his contemporaries, Paramesu lists his most prominent jobs. He calls himself the chati, or vizier, the hereditary noble, or aristocrat, the overseer of the fortress, the overseer of the city, troop commander, and king's scribe. Notably, he does not describe himself as king's son, even in an adopted sense. Even Paramesu's name is standard. The hieroglyphs for his name appear without any cartouche or symbol of royalty. Later, somebody did add cartouches to the sarcophagus, but if you look closely, you will still find the name in its original, non-royal state. So, we have a bunch of scattered information that give hints about the life, background, and career of Paramesu. It's not a lot to go on in terms of building a character study, but that is what we have for this man. Now, we come to the big questions. How, when, and why did Paramesu become Horemheb's heir? In the second half of his reign, Horemheb named Paramesu to be the Chati, or vizier, for northern Egypt. This was an impressive title, nothing to sneeze at. But it didn't mark Paramesu as the heir, at least not officially. It is possible that Horemheb promoted Paramesu as a kind of introduction, a way of starting the process to make this man his successor. That is speculative, but it might have some basis. On his monuments, one of Paramesu's more unique titles was Hereditary Noble of the Lord of the Two Lands, and an alternate version, Hereditary Noble of the Entire Land. These titles also showed up in Horemheb's pre-royal tomb, and they seem to be one of his proudest epithets. For some scholars, like Geoffrey Martin and Jacobus van Dyck, titles like these may have marked Horemheb's claim to inherit the throne after King Tutankhamun. That is a point of debate for historians, but it's interesting. Horemheb had those titles, and he later became the king. Paramesu also shows up with these titles, and he also became a king. It's possible that Horemheb gave these titles to indicate his favour towards Paramesu. Even if the king had not officially named him as a successor, Paramesu's titles, hereditary noble of the Lord of the Two Lands, may have conveyed his privileged position. Maybe titles like this are a new phenomenon that start to mark the heir presumptive. We don't know exactly when Paramesu became the heir, it probably happened after year 13 of Horemheb's reign. We base that on the funeral of Mut Nojmet, who died sometime in year 13 or later. How much later? Unknown, and I'll come back to that next episode. But logically, 
Horemheb would not have named Paramesu as his heir if there was still a chance to bear a son. So at the very least, Paramesu probably became the heir sometime after year 13. The moment itself is not recorded, surprise surprise, but there is one possible, tentative, maybe relevant piece of information. The piece in question is an artistic scene. It comes from Horemheb's tomb at Saqqara. On the walls of this tomb, in one of the courtyards, we see a figure that might be Paramesu. In one scene, a royal official stands with his arms raised in celebration. Around him, small figures, servants, lift up necklaces and collars to fasten around his neck. It is a scene of rewarding. The official is receiving praise. In front of this man, a giant figure stands holding a staff, and he reaches out with one hand. This figure might be Horemheb. We can't be sure. The scene in question only survives on a block. It was removed from the wall in the 1800s, and the rest of the scene is missing. Obviously, that's deeply frustrating, because there's a reasonable chance that this official is Paramesu. The artistic scene shows a man who is mature, possibly elderly. He has deep lines on his face, around his mouth. That seems to be an Egyptian way of conveying maturity or age. He also has a distinctive nose. The official's nose is not straight or even curved, which is the usual way of depicting noses in this period. Instead, this man has a pronounced hook or aquiline shape to his nose. This type of nose is a distinctive feature of the Ramesside males. It shows up in their art, and it shows up on their mummies. Now, the nose does not necessarily mean that the image is Paramesu, but it's a distinctive feature, and a remarkable coincidence between this image and what we know of Paramesu. At the very least, I think there is a decent chance that this wall carving shows that man. If that is accurate, then we may have an image of Paramesu. He appears in Horemheb's tomb, raising his arms and receiving praise and rewards from Horemheb himself. Now, to be clear, this scene probably doesn't show the promotion to crown prince or heir, or whatever you want to call it. Instead, it probably shows the general prestige and status of Paramesu, or whoever it is. And it shows his close personal or political relationship with Horemheb. On the walls of this monument, a monument that honoured Horemheb as a man, and later as a king, we might have an image of Paramesu. Again, this is tentative. As usual, we build our picture from scraps, little bits here and there, that combine to give some sense of the figure. Paramesu was an army officer, born to a military family, who came to prominence in Horemheb's court. He served King Horemheb, and rose high in the government. Eventually, he was voted most likely to succeed should the pharaoh die without heir. Sometime after year 13, Paramesu became the prince. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. 
Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Finally, we have one key question. Why did Horemheb choose this man specifically to be his heir? Paramesu was a prominent military commander and a high-ranking member of the government, a chatti. But none of that specifically gave him a claim to royal power. So what elevated Paramesu above the rest? In the circumstances, I think we can guess that there were two major reasons why Horemheb might choose this man. Firstly, Paramesu offered a lot in the way of experience. His career, like Horemheb's before it, had gone through several stages and parts of the government. From troop commander to overseer of cities and forts, to chati, vizier or prime minister, Paramesu had the experience, and it's a fair bet that Paramesu had developed a close personal or at least political relationship with Horemheb during his years of service. So he had experience in two ways that really counted. He had experience of governance, and he had experience of power, the social networks of Egypt's ruler. On that basis, Paramesu would be a good candidate. If Horemheb appointed him as a successor, he could offer continuity in the government. Additionally, Paramesu had something that Horemheb did not. Paramesu had children. Paramesu had a son named Suti. The boy was named after his grandfather, which might sound confusing. To distinguish young Suti from his grandfather, Let's call him by the more famous version of his name, Seti, the boy who would become Seti I. By the second half of Horemheb's reign, Seti was approximately 16 years old. That is speculative. It depends on the chronology you're using, and how long you measure the reign of Horemheb. Some scholars say that Horemheb had a short reign, about 15 years in total. Others say he had a longer reign, about 27 years. Depending which dates you follow, young Seti might have been 16 when his father became the heir, or he could have been closer to 30. It's frustrating when you're trying to tell a story around all of this, but for the sake of simplicity and picking something, I am going with a longer reign for Horemheb. So I'll put Seti at approximately 16 years old. Whatever his age, Seti was mature and healthy. He had survived the dangers of childhood and grown to puberty, or beyond. Thus, Paramesu had already done what Horemheb could not. He had produced an heir. In this case, young Seti was the heir to Paramesu's household, the House of Rameses, if you will. But soon, he would become much more. This child might have been another point in Paramesu's favour. It is possible that Horemheb looked at Paramesu's family, specifically his son, and saw the future. If Seti was 16, then he had a long life ahead of him. Paramesu was old, but he had this heir. So if Horemheb chose Paramesu to succeed him, then soon after that, Egypt would have a new, young, and vigorous ruler. Maybe, just maybe, Horemheb saw this family, and Seti its heir, and thought, 
Yes, that is a strong line. Finally, it is possible that Paramesu already had a grandson. Again, this is tentative, depending on the chronology you are using. But in the second half of Horemheb's reign, there is a reasonable chance that young Seti, all of 16, had already produced a child. If so, that might be the child Ramesu, later known as Ramesses II. Put this all together, and we might have a resume for Paramesu's candidacy. The military commander had risen high in the government, becoming one of Horemheb's top officials. Thus, he could offer Horemheb and Egypt's wealthy elites a sense of continuity. When the king inevitably died, things would continue as before. Furthermore, Paramesu could offer a future. He had a son, Seti, who was already a teenager. And maybe he had a grandson, Ramesu, still just a baby. Either way, Horemheb's servant had a great set of cards. If there were other candidates for crown prince, Paramesu could dole out a really good hand. He had experience, he had influence, he probably had followers in the government and the army, and he already had legacy. If Horemheb chose him, then the next two, maybe even three generations of rule, were already confirmed. By any measure, that is a full house. So perhaps Horemheb selected Paramesu for two main reasons. He was experienced and able, and he had a stable and growing family. If you were looking for a successor, those might be excellent recommendations. Whatever his exact reasoning, Horemheb probably made this choice sometime after year 13. The death of Mut Nojmet, the Queen of Egypt, removed the primary mechanism by which Horemheb might establish a lineage. Beyond this vague information, we can only speculate. You might assume that Horemheb would take another wife and try again, but if he did that, we do not hear about it. Horemheb leaves no records of other women or children. That doesn't mean they never existed, and future excavations might reveal more information about Horemheb's life. For now, all we can say is that Horemheb, apparently, gave up on children. At some point, the king chose Paramesu to be his heir. We do not know if Horemheb announced this publicly, or if it was a private political arrangement within the court. The king might have acknowledged Paramesu in a ceremony, but we don't have a record for it. Again, that does not mean it didn't happen. But in this historical moment, where major changes were underway, we need to be cautious and not assume too much. Horemheb made his decision. The royal household gained an heir, where before there had been a gap. Either officially or quietly in the halls of power, Paramesu would be the designated successor. Egypt's next king was assured, and potentially the one after that, and maybe the one after that. We now reach the end of chapter 1, and the content recycled from episode 170. Now, it is time to begin the next phase. Paramesu becomes the king. He takes a new name, establishes his identity, and sets about making his mark. His methods are intriguing, to say the least.
The year was 1305 BCE, approximately. King Horemheb was dead, having passed to the west in his 27th year of rule. The pharaoh's body would lie in its memorial temple on the west bank of the Nile. Priests would embalm him and prepare him for his final journey. In the world of the living, the dawn came again. Following Horemheb's death, Egypt gained a new king. Pa-Ra-Mesu, born of the sun, was now pharaoh. In 1305 BCE, Egypt's political establishment seems to have been in a good place. The economy was stable, stable enough to produce large monuments across the country. The foreign situation was reasonably calm. Horemheb had waged at least one campaign in the north, and possibly more. But at the very least, the Egyptian empire in Canaan was secure. Syria was another matter. At home and abroad, pharaonic power was strong and respected. It was a good situation for a new ruler's inheritance. Having taken the throne, Paramesu began his reign. Of course, one of his first acts was to change his name. Until now, Paramesu's name had used a non-royal form of spelling. Instead of using the hieroglyph for Ra, the sun god, it used a phonetic spelling, R-A, to mark the sun aspect. That was classic practice. Only royals used the gods' actual names in their own titles. But now that he had become royal, Paramesu could officially change his identity. The king's cartouches introduce his new name. He was no longer Pa-Ramesu, born of the sun. He was Ramesu, born of Ra. A small change, but it contained a world of difference. Having made the transition from non-royal to royal, Paramesu could take on a new identity, one suitable to his rank. So, Rameses took power. But his accession was not complete. The transition from one king to another would take time and a couple of different steps. Upon gaining authority, Rameses had two jobs to complete, two tasks to perform before he could really begin his reign. First, Rameses would need to bury his predecessor, Horemheb's body, undergoing mummification, would soon be ready for its tomb. It fell to Rameses and the government officials to prepare that funeral. I have described the royal tomb of Horemheb at great length in episodes 169 and 174. I'm not going to recycle that content here. Suffice to say, Horemheb's tomb is beautiful. It is large, though unfinished. It is elaborately decorated, but again, unfinished. And it includes innovations in art and funerary literature. The tomb would be a splendid house for the king's mummy. While Horemheb underwent preservation, royal artisans worked furiously to complete his monument. They failed, and they had to leave much of the decoration in its draft versions. But they got the basics. The proper scenes and hieroglyphs were there, just lacking their artistic flourishes. By the time of the funeral, the tomb was good enough, even if it wasn't perfect. So one day, Ramesses took his predecessor to his grave. The new king, as a high priest, may have led the proceedings in person. The funeral was certainly a lavish affair. Laborers would carry furniture like beds and chairs, statues large and small, 
amulets and jewellery, clothing, cosmetics, food, drink, and all good things that Horemheb might need in eternity. The procession would be long, accompanied by priests singing prayers, musicians accompanying them, acolytes burning incense and purifying the way, soldiers guarding the collective, and probably a great crowd of government officials, civil servants, and those who mourned the old king's passing. Ramesses, perhaps, would lead this parade in honour of his patron. The procession wound its way from Horemheb's memorial temple near Medinet Habu, through the foothills of the West Bank. They entered the wadi, or canyon, that we call the Valley of the Kings, and they made their way up the dry, rocky paths. As they walked, the mourners passed other, older tombs. The monuments of Ai and Amunhotep III lay in a distant wadi to the west. The tomb of Tutankhamun was hidden and secret beneath their feet. The mysterious Keish, KV-55, held the remains of Amana royals. Maybe Akhenaten, maybe Smenkare, maybe Queen T. The funeral passed the tomb of Yuya and Chuyu, the mother and father of Queen T. Horemheb's procession passed each of these burials on its way to his tomb. Further up the valley, other monuments watched the proceedings. The tombs of great kings like Tutmose III and Hatshepsut looked down from high vantage points. And when the procession turned into a side area for Horemheb's tomb, the monument of Amunhotep II was just up the road. Practically neighbours, Amunhotep could look down on his distant successor. In 1305 BCE, the Valley of the Kings was still lightly populated, maybe 15 tombs in total, compared to the 63-plus that we have nowadays. But the hills and valleys were filling up, slowly, with lavish monuments. Rameses and the mourners took Horemheb into his burial chambers. They set up the furnishings and finished stocking the essential supplies. Beautiful statues of wood and gold would watch over the king and guard his sarcophagus. High-quality wine of excellent vintage ensured a happy and slightly tipsy afterlife. Horemheb would lie in comfort and splendour. Rameses, or the priests, finished the burial. They sealed the tomb and concealed its entrance. From this moment, Horemheb's reign was finally and officially over. Rameses could begin his reign in earnest. What would he do? Why, it was time for a coronation, of course. Having buried Horemheb, Rameses could now formally complete his appearance as king. The coronation ceremony would present Rameses to his courtiers and see him invested with the crowns. And he would proclaim his names, his official titles as pharaoh. We don't have much information about Rameses' coronation ceremony, but we can make an educated guess on the location. There is a decent chance that Rameses held his coronation at Karnak. The great house of Amun-Ra, of Mut and Khonsu, had grown significantly through Dynasty 18. By the time Rameses took power, the building had several distinct areas. Most notably, it had an enormous pylon gateway 
On the western side of the temple, facing the river, King Horemheb had erected a massive pair of towers. This pylon, called the second pylon today, was, at the time, the monumental entrance of Karnak. Just beyond Horemheb's pylon, there was another gate, the third pylon. That was a monument of Amunhotep III, the legendary king whose splendor shone across the generations. So the gates of Horemheb and Amunhotep III stood one in front of the other. In between, there was an empty space, an open court ready for ceremonies. There is a good chance that Ramesses used this court to make his first appearance as pharaoh. In the early 20th century, excavators working at Karnak uncovered traces of shrines. Two shrines on the south and north sides of this courtyard appeared behind one of the pylons. The buildings were small, just large enough for a person or a statue to stand within. They're fragmentary, but we get the idea. A basic, serviceable design for two small shrines. What was the point of these? This part is speculative, but it's possible Ramesses used these shrines for his coronation. The buildings were small, just large enough for him to appear inside, either standing or seated on his throne. More importantly, there were two of them, one on the northern side of the court, one on the southern. That is, there was a shrine for each of Egypt's two lands. You may remember that every pharaoh was known as the king of southern and northern Egypt, the Nesu Biti. This dual kingship was a fundamental part of their worldview. Two halves of the country, two distinct regions. Politically, those divisions were unified in the pharaoh, the king of both lands. The point is, the north-south division is a central part of royal ideology and royal pageantry. So when we find two shrines, one in the north and southern halves of a courtyard, it immediately suggests a monument related to the two identities. Again, this is speculative, but it's possible that Ramesses used these shrines in his first appearance as the new king of Egypt. In the course of his coronation, or shortly after, the pharaoh may have come to these shrines and sat upon thrones set up within each kiosk. As he did, Ramesses might take on the regalia of the two lands, the red crown for the north, the white crown for the south, and priests might sing praises to him, songs tailored to each role. Unfortunately, many of these finer details are unknown for Ramesses I, but the shrines at Karnak might be traces of his first ceremony. The shrines are gone today. Archaeologists have identified the foundations and recovered some of the masonry, but the full structures have vanished. Why? Well, later generations replaced Ramesses' shrines with their own monuments, most notably Ramesses' successor, Seti I, later took this courtyard and filled it with enormous stone columns. The court in which Ramesses may have celebrated his appearance was later converted into the Hypostyle Hall, one of the most famous parts of Karnak Temple. But that is a story for another day. Thank you.
The corporate world is like the ocean. It's alluring, but it's also full of deadly creatures that can shred you to pieces. It becomes kind of like a Game of Thrones political arena where everyone's trying to murder you to get your job or your title. As former corporate executives, we know firsthand that navigating corporate waters is not easy. My family doesn't come from corporate backgrounds, so I didn't have any sort of guidance in that. I wish people would be able to understand in this corporate world that talking about things that don't work or identifying problems does not mean you're a problem. We'll dive deep into what happens behind fancy corporate doors or Zoom backgrounds or whatever. Are they really performance improvement plans or just a legal tool to get rid of people? <laughs> I know a lot of people have been saved because of them. We've created a show to help you navigate tricky corporate situations based on research and real life experience. I have really good advice. Don't go to a strip club with your team. <laughs> Listen to the Ambie Award nominated podcast, Surfing Corporate. Ramesses began his reign in classic style. He buried his predecessor, Horemheb and he appeared at an elaborate coronation ceremony. There, he took on the symbols and functions of a Nesu Biti, the king of southern and northern Egypt. Another part of his coronation would involve names. Ramesses would proclaim his official titles as a pharaoh of Egypt. Egyptian rulers used five names, five public titles that conveyed their identity, their personality, and their agenda. Ramesses followed this tradition, and his names give us insights to the new pharaoh's mind. The names of Ramesses as king go as follows. He was the Horus, the strong bull, whose kingship flourishes, or whose kingship is happy. The two ladies, who has appeared as king, like the god Atum, the one who is complete. The golden falcon, he who has established Ma'at throughout the two lands. The king of southern and northern Egypt, the Nesubiti, the established one of Ra's might. The son of Ra, Ramesses. Five names, each conveying an aspect of the new ruler. I won't dive into all of them, but there are a couple of names worth focusing on. First, let's talk about the Golden Falcon name, also known as the Golden Horus name. Ramesses called himself the Golden Falcon, one who has established Ma'at throughout the two lands. He was not the first king in recent history to use a name like that. In fact, he was the fourth. By the time of Ramesses, a name like one who makes or establishes Ma'at in the two lands had become practically a trope. King Horemheb had used that, calling himself Ma'at is pleasing one who has created the two lands. King Ai had called himself the true ruler, or Ma'at's ruler, one who has created the two lands. Even Tutankhamun had called himself the perfect of laws, one who has calmed, Segerech, the two lands. In other words, every king since the death of Akhenaten and Neferneferuaten had used some version of this name. For over 40 years, Egypt's government had been repeatedly undergoing a making or remaking of Ma'at at the hands of the pharaohs. To be clear, these late 18th dynasty rulers did not invent the concept of renewal. Names like this had appeared occasionally for earlier kings. King Amunhotep III, for example, had called himself one who has established laws and calmed the two lands. 
Tutankhamun basically copied that name. And even Thutmose III, the glorious warrior, had called himself one who has caused Ma'at to appear, the beloved one of the two lands. That one is really close to Ramesses' name, one who makes Ma'at in the two lands. So there is an element of looking back or nostalgic referencing here. We can partially interpret Ramesses' name as a reference to older times, more glorious rulers, and more stable generations. Of course, it's easy to see some post-Amana ideas here. Perhaps, following the reign of Akhenaten, and all the controversy that came along with that, the new generations of rulers consciously referenced their predecessors, and their ideals. So Ramesses built on recent examples for part of his identity. He also copied another predecessor, one far older than these recent kings. For his throne name, his official identity as the king of southern and northern Egypt, Ramesses called himself the Nesubiti, the established one of Ra's might. In Egyptian, that name is written as Menpehti Ra, which is almost an exact copy of another throne name, a name used more than 200 years before. Ramesses' name, Menpehti Ra, is nearly identical with that of King Amosa I, the founder of Dynasty 18, the one who drove the Hyksos out of Egypt. Amosa had called himself Neb Pechti Ra, or the Lord of Ra's might. So Ramesses did not just look back 50 years to recent kings, he looked back more than 200 years. Why did he do this? Well, the answer may seem quite obvious. Right out the gate, Ramesses had an issue. He was not the bodily son of Horemheb. He had no blood connection to the previous dynasty. In fact, Ramesses was the third king in a row who did not succeed from his father. For over 30 years since the death of Tutankhamun, Egypt's throne had passed from one royal official to another. The government had adapted and accommodated the change, or at least crushed any opposition. But for an entire generation, Egypt's royal lineage had technically been broken. The father-son succession from Osiris to Horus was not going as smoothly as you would like. From that perspective, we might imagine that Ramesses could have felt a little bit insecure. Not necessarily personally or emotionally, but politically. Being a newcomer to royal authority, and the third one in a row, Ramesses may have felt it necessary to directly invoke legendary ancestors, especially those who had unified the kingdom. We probably shouldn't read too much into that. Back when Horemheb took power, there is circumstantial evidence that he may have faced opposition, and had to crush some figures who tried to take power. For Ramesses, there is no such evidence, no indication of officials who fell from favour, or needed to be removed violently. It seems that Ramesses' names, his official royal titles, are simply a knowing reference to great figures of the past. He probably used these names to make himself more splendid by association, and to set his regime and his new household on as strong a footing as possible. So right out the gate, Ramesses built strong connections with the past, with earlier generations and great rulers. And when he succeeded Horemheb, 
he paid the proper respects to him as well. But Ramesses went further than this when dealing with Horemheb's legacy. When Ramesses took power, he inherited the enormous building projects of Horemheb. The late pharaoh had invested huge resources on temples and cities throughout the country. Some of that work was unfinished, still in progress when he died. As you can imagine, Ramesses took the opportunity to complete some of his patrons' work. It's quite common for new pharaohs to start their reign by finishing or adding to earlier monuments. Building projects were enormous undertakings, and starting something from scratch would take a while. But if a temple or a shrine was still being constructed, well, it was relatively cheap and easy to just carry on doing that. Change the royal cartouches, maybe a few tweaks to the imagery, and a king could start their reign on a good foot, with some quick and easy accomplishments. Ramesses was not the first to do this, but his work is notable. At Karnak, Ramesses finished some of Horemheb's building work. The best example of this can be found on the second pylon, the enormous entrance gate that Horemheb had erected. When you visit Karnak today, you find the second pylon just past the great open courtyard. The pylon is collapsed, although restoration work is underway. But if you look at the central gateway leading to the hypostyle hall, you will see examples of Horemheb and Ramesses. Images on this pylon show King Horemheb making offerings. He stands before the gods and he does the usual rituals. But here and there, you will also find images of Ramesses. The new king took over work on some scenes that were incomplete, and he finished them off with his own designs. Sometimes this was simple, the king could just add his image to empty spaces. Other times though, it required a few revisions. In at least one instance, Ramesses completed one of Horemheb's scenes. When he did this, the new king decided to claim credit for the entire scene. He carved his name over the top of Horemheb's. But he did not erase Horemheb's name when he did this. Instead, the artist just took the old cartouche and carved new hieroglyphs on top of the old ones. It makes for a very confusing visual. Even worse, somebody else did the exact same thing a few decades later. Following Ramesses I, another ruler added their cartouche on top of the old one. Again, they didn't erase what was there, they just piled the hieroglyphs on top. Today, the result is a uniquely jumbled and incomprehensible name. At a glance, you would think the carver had gone totally insane. The new carvings, and those small shrines in the courtyard, were Ramesses' main contributions to Karnak. In fact, they are his only contributions. On current evidence, the pharaoh started this work, but he never did any more. Why not? Well, that's a story for the next episode. For now, it is time to bring this chapter to a close. Around 1305 BCE, a new ruler appeared on the throne of Egypt. Pa-Ra-Mesu, born of the sun, gained power following the death of his patron Horemheb. The pharaoh was a newcomer, with no blood ties to the previous royals. But Horemheb had chosen Paramesu to succeed, and succeed he did. 
Now Egypt would have a new pharaoh, and because Paramesu also had children, and maybe grandchildren, Egypt would also have a new ruling family. Once he took power, the king changed his old name, Paramesu, to Ramesu, born of Ra. We translate this today as Ramesses. He also gave himself royal names that hearkened back to great ancestors. Most notably, he evoked and nearly copied Amosa I, the king who established the 18th dynasty. The new pharaoh seems to have acknowledged his novelty, that his reign marked a new era and new lineage. Building on this idea, Ramesses connected himself with a ruler who had done the same thing, centuries before. So as the new reign started, the Egyptian government was looking into the past, and building on venerable traditions. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. If you have a moment, please consider completing the listener survey. There is a link in the episode description, or you can visit www.surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airwave. This survey is simply to help the podcast have more appropriate and meaningful advertising. The survey is completely anonymous, and if we get enough responses, I will make bonus episodes about some of my favorite monuments from the late 18th dynasty. Once again, follow the link in the episode description, or visit www.surveymonkey.com forward slash r forward slash airwave. If you have already completed the survey, my thanks to you. Thank you for listening to the History of Egypt podcast. Additional research was provided by Alyssa Day, an Egyptology student who assists me with referencing and bibliographic material. Of course, any mistakes in the narrative are entirely mine. If you are enjoying the show, consider leaving a rating or review on your podcasting app of choice. You can also leave comments and let me know what you thought of the episode. If you would like to support the podcast directly, consider signing up to my Patreon. Patreon subscribers can access a range of exclusive perks, including ad-free episodes, early releases, supplementary notes and images, and moving forward, exclusive video versions of some episodes. I'm going to start making more effort to produce video content for YouTube particularly, and now and again I will turn some episodes into videos with all the pictures I have about relevant topics. That perk will be appearing soon on Patreon. If you would like to sign up and access that when it's ready, make sure to visit patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. This episode was greatly improved thanks to the support of my priests. These fine folks are the top tier subscribers on patreon.com forward slash Egypt podcast. Thank you so much to Ashley, Martha, Stephen, Nadine, Kyla, Evan, Kendra, Andy and Chelsea, Mykost, Yola, TJ, Terry, and Linda. Their generosity is unparalleled. Thanks to their support, we can build beautiful shrines at Karnak, and their names will stand on the pylons forevermore. 
Hopefully, the artist won't carve each priest's name one atop the other. If they do, the future scholars are going to have a serious headache. To everyone listening to the show, thank you so much for joining me. I hope you have enjoyed this chapter. What did it take to survive an ancient siege? Why was the cult of Dionysus behind so many slave revolts in ancient Rome? What's the tragic history and mythology behind Japan's most haunted ancient forest? We're Jen. And Jenny. From Ancient History Fangirl. Join us to explore ancient history and mythology from a fun, sometimes tipsy perspective. Find us at ancienthistoryfangirl.com or wherever you get your podcasts.